Welcome to Calvary Life DFW's weekly podcast. We hope this podcast encourages you, challenges you, and furthers your relationship with God in a whole new way. Enjoy this week's message. Advertisement. Uh, most of you know that I am a publisher and a writer, and I work for Marriage Today, or most, most of you know it probably now as XO Marriage, XO Marriage Ministry. It's also the home of endtimes.com, where Pastor Jimmy Evans once a week uh, does a television show, and he also does articles every day. Tomorrow, a new book is releasing that we worked on together, and it's called Look Up, and it's about uh, what happens to believers at the time of the rapture. So I don't know that there's any book out there like this. It's a 400-page book. It is a huge book. A lot's going to happen to you at the rapture. So I would just give that quick advertisement. I'm going to bring up a photo here. Uh, this first photo that you're going to see is of two little girls. That is Paris and London Jefferson, and they are elementary age girls, and they live in northwest Florida. And their Aunt Nina captures videos of those girls, things they say and things they do, and then she posts them to Instagram, Facebook, and I think even TikTok and Twitter. But some of you may have already seen some of their videos. In fact, you may have seen the ones that I'm about to show you. Have, have anybody familiar with them at all? Good. I didn't want everybody to know who they were. In this photo, you're going to see that Paris is on your right and London is on your left. London is actually the older sister. She doesn't look like she's bigger, but she is older. And Paris and London definitely have different attitudes. Uh, London is more mellow. London is a sweet, quiet-spoken girl. Paris is not. And in this first video that I'm going to show you, it's going to open with their Aunt Nina behind the camera, and she's asking Paris questions. She's asking her questions about a school bully. Because apparently this day, London has been bullied by another girl at school, and before long, Paris is going to join the conversation. <laughs> so I want you to take a real quick look here at how this story begins, Paris and London and the bully. All right, y'all. So this, I just want to say, bullying is not okay. So London, you want to tell everybody what happened today? 
Tell me that girl so I can beat her up. Pierce, Pierce, Pierce. We having a serious moment right now, okay? I don't want you trying to fight nobody, okay? Tell me her. Paris, I said stop. Paris. Tell me Paris, her. Paris, are you just going to ignore me talking to you? What's her name? Paris. What's her name? Look at TT Paris. Paris. What's her name? London. Nobody should bully you. You're a very beautiful little girl, okay? And you're very sweet. What? What's but, her name? When I told you about bullies and stuff, you got to stand up to them. What's her name? Paris, stop it. Okay, stop it. You want to know the girl's name? Why do you want to know her name, Paris? Why? London. You ain't about to beat up nobody. What's her name? Paris does not like nobody messing with her sister. She get really upset. Paris? What's her name? Paris, violence is not the answer, okay? What's her name? We don't know her name, sweetie. What's her name? All right. What's her name? Paris is relentless, and, and I don't know, but I told my kids when they were young, Nathan, you'll remember this, Brothers first take up for each other. So I know I'm not advocating violence. <laughs> but I talked to a school, before they had all of this um, zero tolerance stuff in the schools, I was talking to a superintendent here in Texas, and I said, are you going to have zero tolerance? Now, this was years ago, because they've all been forced into it now. And he says, no, sometimes a bully just needs to get punched in the nose. And they're still going to get, you're still going to get in trouble, but sometimes that's the only way to deal with it. And so young Paris here, she does not like anyone messing with her sister. And some of, some of you may have had a sister like Paris or wish you did. Some of us still need a sister like Paris. That's not the end of the story though, because the next day, Paris discovers the name. And once again, Aunt Nita starts behind the camera and she's asking London questions after she tells the girls, I got called up to the school today. So let's roll that second video of Paris and London. All right, y'all, so I want y'all to tell everybody what happened. So y'all, they're not in trouble. The girls aren't in trouble, but they had an interesting day today. I did have to go to the school. But London, go ahead and tell everybody what happened. Um, try not to tell Pierce that girl name, but she um went over to that girl and she start um she tapped her and said. Don't put your hands on my sister no more. And I would do it again. Yes, okay. Oh, and you found out the girl named Paris? Uh-huh. What was her name? Stormy. And I showed her the storm. Paris, you know what y'all are doing. I'm talking about it, but just never mind. But London, you okay now? Since we talked to the principal and everything, and they said they're going to handle it. And now that Paris got a pink slip and has to be a car rider for a couple days, it's okay, though. You gonna start setting up for yourself, baby girl? All right, y'all. <laughs>
If you're going to pick on London, you better hope Paris does not find out your name. There's another video after this one, and I'm not showing it because um, we're in church. Um, but once again, Aunt Nina's filming, and this time the video opens with Paris rather than London, and she's asking London, show me your knuckles. And it's obvious that Paris's hands are a little bruised because she brought Stormy the Storm. And um, when Aunt Nina asked her to explain why she did it, she had specifically told her to leave Stormy alone, remember? But she asked her why she did it, and Paris's response is, Boozy told me to. Now, in case you don't know, I want to show you a picture of Boozy. I actually like Boozy, by the way. He's from New Orleans. He's a rapper, a talented singer. I may be pronouncing it wrong, Boozy. It's B-O-O-S-I-E. And, and there's more to the name, but again, this is a not safe for Sunday school word, so I'm not going to do that. But indeed, when she says he told her to, there is a song, it's a 2018 song called Love Your Family. Some of y'all are not going to admit that you've listened to it, but I know you have. And apparently Aunt Nina's been playing this song in the car, taking the girls back and forth to school. Now my mother used to say, and I had to explain this one to my wife, little pitchers have big ears. You know what that is? Kids are listening when you don't think that they are. And they're soaking it up. Well, he did indeed tell her to beat up anyone who messes with her sister in that song. Only, again, he didn't use church words. So, consequently, I'm not going to show that video, but the Bible doesn't say anywhere specifically that we have personal guardian angels. I mean, we have angels, but not ones assigned to us personally, probably. However, if I have one, I hope he's a lot like Paris on my behalf. I hope he's strong. I hope he's big and maybe even a little bit angry. This whole series we've been talking about the waiting room. And you've received a lot of good biblical information about how to wait on the Lord. You might be sitting here thinking today though, I've tried all that. I've prayed, I've read my Bible, I've gone to church, I've tried to stay in the Word, I've tried to obey God, and something still doesn't seem to be working. Those days stretch into weeks, and then weeks stretch into years, and you're still waiting. And we keep telling you here in church that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, we wrestle against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places, but guess what? Sometimes those principalities and those powers have flesh and blood, real skin people working for them full time. And they are doing everything they can to stand between you and your God-given destiny. How many of you can relate to that? 
You're fighting them with all your might. You're trying to deal with them, but we all have stormies in our lives. We all have those people. Sometimes they're bullies and sometimes they just get in the way. And I want to affirm your reality today and tell you you're not imagining things. There are real villains. Sometimes they just don't know any better, but I will tell you what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who knew a th thing or two about bullies, he dealt with the Nazis, he said sometimes stupid people are more dangerous than evil people. Someone standing in your way just may not know any better. We tell you to love everyone. We tell you to forgive everyone. We tell you to pray for everyone. We tell you to bless everyone. And still in your mind, you know love, forgiveness, prayer, and blessing aren't working in this situation. If you don't have anyone like that in your life, I guarantee you, you have friends who do. So I hope that you'll listen closely today because that person that you're dealing with who's standing in your way may not be some enemy way out there. They can be an acquaintance. They can be a friend. They can be a former friend. They can be your employer, your co-worker, your classmate, your neighbor, your family member. They can be your spouse, your children, they can be your parent. And that person in your life may not be evil, but they're definitely a barrier between you and what God has promised for you. At least be honest and admit it to God. If you can't admit it to me, at least admit it to God. You're also not alone. Every single person in here at some point has experienced someone like that and some of you are experiencing that right now. The Bible has a lot of villains. You know about all the heroes. Of course, Jesus is the greatest hero. You know about those. But the Bible, when it has a villain, it's always a really bad villain. I'll list a few of those for you real quick. Satan, of course. Cain, Pharaoh, Delilah, Abimelech, Ahab and Jezebel. Adaliah, who was Jezebel's daughter. Haman, the one Esther had to stop from killing all the Jews in Persia. King Herod, the baby killer. And then Judas Iscariot. He was not Satan, but the Bible says Satan had entered into him. And that's the situation with many of these Bible villains. They aren't Satan, but they're on the payroll. Some of them work for him on salary full time. And there's one person I didn't list, and he's also not the devil, but let me tell you, they are on a first-name basis. And that's Laban. If this man had gotten his way, we might not even have the Bible. If he had gotten his way, and you probably think Laban's a minor character. But if God had not put a stop to Laban, 
Israel as a nation and as a people would not exist. He opposed, he opposed God's person, Jacob, and he did it in deceitful and underhanded ways. By the end of the story, he is outright hostile and deadly. Again, God had to save the situation. I won't go into the whole family tree. You can look this up online. It's a very interesting family tree. If you want to look at Abraham's family tree, a lot of intermarriage and everybody's related to everybody. But Laban, I just want you to remember these three, three things. One, he was kin to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was Jacob's father-in-law and uncle. But this is the third and most important thing to remember about him. The last time he saw Abram, that was his name. It wasn't Abraham. Back then, Abraham had grown up in a house where his daddy made idols for a living. Abraham was an idol worshiper. He worshipped the many gods of Aram, which is modern day Syria, in case you don't know what part of the world that is. And Abraham was getting to know Yahweh, but he didn't fully know him yet. In fact, I don't believe Abraham really knew who God was until he was standing with a knife above his head on Mount Moriah getting ready to sacrifice his son and the Lord God of all the universe intervened and said, N -n, don't do it. That's when he really knew who God was. But that's a lot of years later. Back to Laban though. If you're already familiar with him, then you might not think of him as such a villain. He's just an annoyance. He, you probably think he's a really bad father-in-law. I mean, if you say, well, I would like to have a biblical relationship with my in-laws, I hope it is Naomi and Ruth and not Jacob and Laban. However, to the Jewish com community, he is about as bad as it gets. And let me tell you why. During Passover, every year, Jewish families read from a book called the Haggadah. And in case you don't know what that is, it's a book that retells the story about how the Jewish people came to be. And it's something that they do to remember because being the people of God is about memory. Remember our encounters with God. It especially focuses on Exodus and the Passover in Exodus. It isn't the Bible, it's an interpretation, but it is how the Jewish community has interpreted those events at least since the time of Jesus. And in the Haggadah, I want you to listen really closely to this because this is what it says. Go and learn what Laban the Aramean sought to do to our father Jacob. A Pharaoh made his decree only about the males, whereas Laban sought to destroy us all. Wait a minute. You hear what they're saying? Laban's worse than Pharaoh. 
and Pharaoh's bad. And why and how could he possibly be worse? Because Pharaoh only wanted to kill the male children. But if Laban had had his way, then Jacob would have never left Aram. He would have never returned to Canaan, the land that God promised. His children would have never been distinct from all the other children of Aram. And they would have learned to worship the gods of Aram. And Israel as a nation would have never existed. If Laban wins, all humanity loses. He put all humanity at risk. You may have some bad in-laws, but they probably never put all humanity at risk. So in a very real sense, he's not just a bad father-in-law. What the Hebrew community says, listen to me closely here, Laban is the first anti-Semite. I'll go, I'll go one step further. Laban is the first full-fledged racist in the Bible. I didn't, come up with, I didn't come up with that. That is taught by Jewish scholars all over the world. And especially in this week, when we as a nation set aside a day and said we're going to remember the Holocaust, that was Friday, let's remember Laban. May his tribe never increase. How is he an anti-Semite and a racist? Well, he wants to hold Jacob hostage. He took advantage of Jacob for 20 years, and Laban does not want it to end. Even so, the whole time that Jacob is there, Laban's angry with him. He's angry because he came, and he's angry when he leaves. Why is he so mad? Because Laban wants to keep Jacob as a slave, not as a son-in-law. He doesn't want Jacob to have dignity. No independence for you, Jacob. But Jacob finds a way to make it and be successful. And that's what I'm talking about today, that even if you have a Laban in your life, you can make it. Throughout history, the Jewish people have been forced to flee for their lives. And when they've arrived in a new place, at first they're treated kindly. They enrich the people around them, the people already living in the land. And then those people want to own them. But Jewish people will not be owned. They have their own identity, they have their own way of living. They have their own God. People claim Jews are taking advantage of them, but it's exactly the opposite. And if you're following any celebrities today that are spouting anti-Semitic stuff, please stop. It's demonic. They accuse the Jewish people of all sorts of theft and all sorts of evil. And yet the Jews continue to contribute to the prosperity of their neighbors. 
It's a textbook racist move. Don't be successful. Don't have independence. Don't have self-respect. Your prosperity makes us angry and envious. And when it gets to that point, it is dangerous to be a Jew. How do racists operate? You don't know, I'll tell you, three strategies. We don't have a meeting about this to decide what they are, but three strategies. They hate people, and those people must be a minority because if they were a majority, they'd be afraid to mess with them. That's number one. Number two, they hate people who become successful, so don't become successful and we won't envy you. And that wealth and success of the hated people must be evident and it must be visible. It must be conspicuous. So if you don't want racists mad, blend in or become invisible. Don't succeed, and if you are, definitely don't let anyone know it. Am I stepping on anybody's toes? Anybody hearing me? Because if they do, envy will turn to anger, anger will turn to hatred, and hatred will become deadly. Jacob didn't do any of those things right. He didn't become invisible. So Laban grew to hate him. And so Laban, the anti-Semite, Pharaoh only existed one time about 4,000 years ago. The people who think and act like Laban are in our world every day of the week. And I understand he was of the same blood as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but when Abraham began to worship Yahweh, they were completely different people. I'm going to stop right here for a minute, and I didn't plan to do this until this morning because I was praying about this, and God said to say this, but if you're, if you're paying attention to the news, you know about what's happening in Memphis related to the death of Tyree Nichol. And I'm sure that it distresses you because it distresses me. And if I don't say something here, who's going to say it? I'm going to beg you not to get into arguments online. It's nasty out there in the social media world right now. A young man died in Memphis for no good reason. And it's tragic and something is very, very wrong. But if you're arguing with people on the online, I'm going to ask you, please stop. Arguing with people online is like trying to play chess with a pigeon. It'll knock over all the pieces, poop on the board, and then fly away and brag to all his friends that he won. <laughs> Instead, I'm going to ask that we do this, and I'm going to pause right here to do it, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray for this situation, and I'm going to say, Lord Jesus we need you as a nation, so right now we pray 
for Tyree Nichols' family. We pray for the city of Memphis, and we pray for our nation. We ask God for you to guide us. We ask, Lord, for you to show us what we should do as a church to make a more just and caring society. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. But if someone's got to say it, we better say it as the church because everybody else is talking. And that goes for a lot of arguing that, that happens online. We just need to stop. If you're doing it, please stop. You're not witnessing, you're not witnessing to the gospel by arguing online. Do better, Christians. Do better. Back to Laban. <laughs> Ironically, his name means white. Ironically. But don't read too much into that name because I'm telling you, at least don't read modern white folks into that name because we got enough sin ourselves. And I want you to remember what Pastor Gwenmar said last week about Lot. Lot's name means veil and so Laban's name has a very similar type of meaning. Veil as in his true self, his true sinful and corrupt self is hidden behind a veil. Laban looks like he's pure on the outside. His motives are pure, but he is dirty, stinking, rotten underneath. So let me quickly catch you up at this point of the story. And by the way, you have your scriptures there on that on that. Um, handout that you're given. I'm not going to read word for word everyone, so just be warned of that. But I am going to suggest that you go home and read them. I'll put them up here and I'll refer to them, but go home and read them. There's 60 verses there. That's a lot. So let me catch you up to this point in the book of Genesis. This is a 60 second overview and my wife timed me last night and it is exactly 60 seconds. So if you got your stopwatch ready, you can time me, but this is it. God created the world, humans sinned, they only got worse, God sent a flood but saved Noah, then the world began to repopulate, then they all joined and built the Tower of Babel which God destroyed, God chose Abraham and told him to leave Aram after a long time, God gave him Isaac, Abraham was promised land and many descendants to bless the whole world, Isaac's wife was Rebekah, but she was also Laban's sister. At this point, Laban enters the picture. Laban is real happy when he finds out that Abraham's willing to pay a lot of money to get Rebekah for Isaac as a wife. Here's the first time we hear about Laban, and we find out he is greedy and he's only concerned about himself. Isaac and Rebekah have two sons, Jacob and Esau. They don't get along very well, but that's for another sermon. And when Jacob's old enough, Isaac sends him back to get a wife in Aram. About 60 seconds? Okay, so you're caught up with the story. Unfortunately, Jacob didn't have a sister like Paris to take care of the stormy in his life. He was all alone with Laban. And Jacob is given the same promises that Abraham is given. He's given the same promises his father Isaac has been given. 
but he's facing a very unique problem. They had some enemies, Abimelech, some other, the, the Pharaoh, but they didn't have what Jacob had. Jacob had a real flesh and blood person that was in his life for 20 years. A thorn in his flesh who kept trying to get in the way. But I want to tell you how today, so how you can go from God's promise in your life to the promised land, even if you have a Laban in the way. Where God will fulfill everything that He said He would do for you, He said He would do it, even if there's a Laban. And I'm going to begin with going to Genesis chapter 25, and this is verses 21 through 23. And I'm going to summarize it very quickly here. What happens in this passage, and you can leave each verse up and play through it, but what happens in this passage is Rebecca becomes pregnant, but God gives her a vision. And God gives her a vision and tells her you're going to have two sons, but they're not always going to get along well with each other. And the younger one is actually going to be a rival with the older one, and their, their children will become a nation, and those nations will have a rivalry for all time. And we are seeing that today. Now the first thing I want to tell you as you encounter this, the first thing to do when you are trying to go from a promise to the promised land is be open to visions and dreams. God speaks in Genesis through visions and dreams. There are ten dreams in the book of Genesis. If you want to go find them, that's your, that's your assignment uh, for trivia to name the ten dreams in Genesis. This, this book has a lot of dreaming. I want to tell you something. We're a church that believes in visions and dreams. Why do we do that? Because we think God still speaks. And we're open to hear Him. Spirit-filled, and we're a Spirit-filled church in case you're wondering, it means that God is empowering you all the time with His voice. He is speaking all the time. He is present all the time. And He can do everything that He was always able to do. The problem isn't whether God is speaking. The problem is whether we're listening. People talk about, you know, I need to make a decision. No, you don't. You need to listen better. Once you decided to follow Christ, that was the last decision you had. Now you're discerning. You're not deciding. Listen. So we're going to chapter 28. And this is where, chapter 28 and verse 1, this is where, this is where Isaac tells Jacob to go and find a wife back in Aram. And 
what is really important about this, one, that his father tells him to go, but the second thing that's really important here is that he then tells Jacob the same promise that was on your grandfather Abraham and on me is now on you. It's your promise. Now Jacob heard that, but it's going to take him just a minute to believe it. And I'm going to show you when he really believed it. So Father Isaac tells him to go and notice that the promise is the same. So this is chapter 28 skipping down to verse 10. And I'm actually going to read this passage. Verse 10, Meanwhile, Jacob left Beersheba and traveled toward Haran. At sundown he arrived at a good place and set up camp and stopped there for the night. Jacob found a stone to rest his head against and lay down to sleep. And as he slept, he dreamed of a stairway that reached from earth up to heaven. And he saw the angels of God going up and down the stairway. At the top of the stairway stood the Lord and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your grandfather Abraham. Remember the promise? Here we're going to get it again. And the God of your father Isaac, three generations down, the ground you're lying on belongs to you. I'm giving it to you and your descendants. Your descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth and they will spread out in all directions so to the east and the, to the west and the east, to the north and the south, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through your, you and your descendants. What's more, I am with you and I will protect you wherever you go, and one day I will bring you back to this land. This is the promise. And I will not leave you until I have finished giving you everything I So Jacob wakes up, this is also in that passage, and he realizes, surely the Lord is in this place. And so he, he um, and he says, and this is the gateway to heaven. I, I've seen the gateway to heaven. And so the next morning he gets up real early and he sets up a memorial stone and he pours olive oil over it and he named the place Bethel which will come up again later, this is the house of God. God has met me here. When God gives you a promise and a vision, He will confirm it for you in many ways. You're not just having a bad dream from bad pizza. When God speaks to you, He will confirm it through the Spirit, through the Word, through other believers, and believe it or not, through good common sense. He'll do it. So, when God gives you a word, be open to that word, but have the courage to follow it. Wherever God speaks, I will tell you what Jacob did. He set up a pile of stones and he consecrated that moment and that place. To be the people of God is to have memory. So he memorializes that moment. You don't make a monument to God. You make a monument that said God still can do what he did here. Amen. So 
So being, being God's people is about memory. And I will encourage you to do this. If you've never done this before, I challenge you to do this. Go home and pull out some paper and write down every time in your life when you know God has specifically spoken to you. You'll be amazed. And if it hasn't happened yet, get on your face before God because it will happen. So the first thing that you do is you believe and you're open to dreams and visions. The second thing is believe in the promise. What is the promise? This is in chapter 28 and verse 20. Then Jacob made this vow, if God will indeed be with me and protect me on this journey, and if he will provide me with food and clothing, Jacob's saying, if God doesn't take care of me, I'm going to be naked and starving. That's the truth of all of us. My mother used to say that. If God didn't take care of us, we'll starve. And you might think, well, that's a very negative way of viewing it. No, that's not a negative way at all. God will take care of us or we will starve. There are no in-betweens. And if I return safely to my father's home, then the Lord will certainly be my God. And this memorial pillar I have set up will become a place for worshiping God and I will present to God a tenth of everything he gives me. Did you hear that, Pastor Dean? He's believing that God will carry on the line through him. Does he mean he won't believe in God if God fails? Don't read it that way. He's saying, if that were to happen, I'm not going to exist at all. Because if God fails, we all fail. You know, people are like, you know, if, uh, if God ceased to exist, then there would be, you know, maybe matter floating around. No, if God ceased to exist, everything that is would cease to exist. Everything. That's just a fact. There isn't a second option. There is no plan B. Either God takes care of us or we die. And notice the tithe here. God's your supplier. Jacob gives to God because, not because, oh, well, I'm going to see if I can figure out whether I can still take care of things. No, Jacob gives to God because there is no other option. There is no plan B. So again, believe in the promise. And Jacob literally puts his money where his mouth is. So number three, pursue the promise. This is in chapter 29 and beginning with verse 16. Laban has two daughters. I want you to notice this, and I'm going to read a little bit of this here. Laban has two daughters. The older daughter was named Leah, and the younger one was Rachel. There was no sparkle in Leah's eyes. Some translations say she didn't see well. Who knows? But Rachel had a beautiful figure and a lovely face. Since Jacob was in love with Rachel, he told her father, I'll work for you for seven years if you'll give me Rachel, your younger daughter, as my wife. Agreed, Laban replied. I'd rather give her to you than anyone else. Stay and work with me, 
So Jacob worked seven years to pay for Rachel, but his love for her was so strong that it seemed to him but a few days. Ladies, wouldn't you like your husbands to think of you like that? Do you know there's only two places in the Bible where it specifically, literally says a man loved his wife? You know, there's lots of commands about loving your wife. There's only two people in the Bible who actually says they did. Jacob and Isaac. He learned from his dad. Now, that doesn't mean nobody else did. Just know there's only two. There's your Bible trivia for the day. The promise that, that Jacob is given is land, but the promise is also people. You can't have people if you don't have babies. So he knows that he is got to find a wife, and he's looking to Rachel as God's woman for him. Now, Laban messes up some, some things and gets the second sister involved in the situation. And at first, Laban welcomes Jacob warmly into the family, but after a time, he starts trying to take advantage of him, and that's what happened. He fooled him into marrying the older sister first. So Jacob ends up having to work for Rachel for 14 years. Now I want to tell you, this is the last time in the Bible, at least in the Old Testament, where you're going to hear about sister wives. And these two do have some conflict. You'll, you can read about that in the text. But it is the last time because the law of Moses later on says you can't marry sisters. So apparently this wasn't a really good example of how to go about doing things. It just is a fact. It's what happened. So number four, let's go there. Work like the life of the promise depends on it. Work like the life of the promise depends on it. Now, God ultimately is the one you have to depend on, but you need to work like it depends on you. Chapter 30. Soon after Rachel had given birth, Jacob said to Laban, Please release me so I can go home. Let me take my wives and children, for I have earned them by serving you, and let me be on my way. You certainly know how hard I have worked for you. Well, what happens is, Jacob or, or Laban says, you know, you've, I've really prospered under you. You've made me wealthy, but, but let me make a deal with you. Please don't go away. I want you to keep working. And Jacob does continue to work, and he works hard. Jacob does not lay around waiting for the promise simply to appear. Jacob is busy every day. My mother used to say, God moves mountains, you bring a shovel. If you're tired of going around the same mountain, maybe dig through it. God can move a mountain, but he might do with you. God is the author and the finisher of every promise in your life, but that does not give you an excuse to be lazy. It doesn't. Jacob knew he had to take care of his family because the Bible says that if you don't do it, you're worse than an unbeliever. Worse than an infidel. That's what Paul says. You can't serve God and ignore your family. Now, I'm going to say something. You might need to cover your ears, Pastor G, but church work ain't necessarily God's work. Do not get those two confused. I've known lots of marriages that have ended up on the rocks 
because people got that confused. Your family is 100% of the time God's work. And if you come to me and you say, you know, I'm so busy at church, I just, or I'm having trouble at home with my wife about it, you know what I'm going to tell you? Go home. Go home. So work like the life of the promise depends on it and take care of your family. Number five, be honest and shrewd in all you do. I'm going to summarize this passage. What happens is Jacob makes a deal with Laban. Laban says, uh, you know, stay around. Let's make a deal. Uh, so Jacob says, I'll make a deal with you. I will take all of the sheep that you have that are either spotted or striped. Laban's like, okay, that sounds like a good deal. I'll save all the pretty ones. Now, I'm no, I don't know that Jacob really knew exactly what was going to happen here, but God did. God knew what was going to happen because all of a sudden all these sheep started producing striped and spotted sheep, even the ones that were pure color. And Jacob got wealthy. Now, God, God is not against you being a smart business person. There's nothing wrong with being a smart business person. Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, if you read through it, there are lots of verses in there, lots of Proverbs about how to be shrewd in business. No shame in it. But be a person of integrity. Don't be dishonest. Again, don't be naive. I had a professor who used to tell me that outside the Bible, one of the most important statements that that typified his life was trust everyone but cut the cards. Christians, you don't have to be dumb to be a Christian. Be honest, have integrity, be a good business person, make fair deals. This was a fair deal when Jacob made it. God's the one that's decided how it was going to go down. And God blessed it. So be honest and shrewd in all you do, and God will bless it. Number six, get ready for opposition. So this is chapter 31, verses 1 and 2. Jacob, But Jacob soon learned that Laban's sons were grumbling about him. Jacob has robbed our father of everything, they said. He's gained all his wealth at our father's expense. And Jacob began to notice a change in Laban's attitude toward him. Laban and his sons now fully hate Jacob. Some people will become envious of your success, like I said earlier. Don't apologize for God blessing you. Some people will fear you. Don't fear them. Fear the Lord. They will oppose you. Do right anyway. Do right anyway. So you will face opposition in trying to go from promise to the promised land. Keep going. Keep going. Number seven, know when it's time to move. Know when it's time to move. In chapter 31, verse 3, the Lord tells Jacob, go back to the land of your father and your grandfather. Go back. And then 
he says in verse 13, he reminds him, I'm the God who appeared to you at Bethel, the place where you anointed the pillar of stone. Remember Jacob said, this is the house of God. This is, where I, this is where I know I've met God. Go back there, Jacob. And then verse 14, it's not on your outline there, but verse 14 is really important because this is where both Rachel and Leah said, we agree with you. Our dad has wasted all our inheritance, so we ain't got nothing here anyway. We'll go with you. Let's go. Everybody's in agreement. God's guiding Jacob, and God's the one that told him to move. And when God says move, you move. Now, that may not be a geographical move. In fact, I probably should say when God tells you to make moves, make moves. His wives confirmed it. And that only strengthened Jacob's resolve. Men, listen to your wives. Your wife is not the Holy Spirit, but you can bet she probably hears him more clearly than you do most of the time. And that's why I added that verse 14, because you think you heard from God, you better ask your wife. Am I right? Wives will make sure that you're hearing from God and not simply just speaking your preferences. Wives will make sure you heard from God and you're not just having wishful thinking. They will test you. They will ask you questions. That's right. And they'll keep you out of a lot of trouble. Number eight, trust your bodyguard. Who's Jacob's bodyguard? It's not Paris. He didn't have Paris. Boy, I wish I'd have had Paris, but it's not Paris. His bodyguard is the Lord God Almighty. Three days later, this is chapter 31, verse 22. Three days later, Laban was told that Jacob had fled, so he gathered a group of his relatives and set out in hot pursuit. Group of relatives, some traditions say there was many as 400 men. That's a small army. He caught up with Jacob seven days later in the hill country of Gilead, but the previous night, Jacob's bodyguard visited. The previous night, God had appeared to Laban, Laban the Aramean in a dream and told him, I'm warning you, leave Jacob alone. See, sometimes God speaks to people in dreams like he spoke to Jacob. Sometimes he speaks in dreams like he does to Laban, so you better leave him alone. In fact, if the God of my father, this is, this is down uh, in verse, I think it's verse uh, 42, in fact, if the God of my father had not been on my side, this is Jacob speaking, the God of Abraham and the fearsome God of Israel, you would have sent me away empty-handed, but God has seen your abuse and my hard work. That is why he appeared to you last night and rebuked you. I'm really glad that London has Paris, and I don't judge her for taking up for her sister. In fact, when I asked for the the, the rights to use that video, I wanted her mother to know, or her aunt to know that I'm not, I'm not criticizing these little girls. They're just little girls, and I don't blame her. 
you might not like her methods, but I like her spirit. And I like that mindset. You don't have a Paris in your life. you got something better. Your bodyguard cannot be crossed. This other dream, God will work in every way possible to protect you and to protect the promise and the calling that he has on your life. Jacob says, if God wasn't on my side, if God isn't on his side, he's in big trouble. But God is on your side. Trust your bodyguard. By best estimates, like I said, there's about 400 men here. A small army. It's just Jacob, his kids, and his wives. But God was on Jacob's side. So number nine, let's move on. Know which God you serve. This may be the most important point of all of these. This is in chapter 31, verses 51 through 53. See this pile of stones, Laban continued. This is a really important verse, and you, it's easy to miss what is being said here. But I'm going to make it really, really clear, because this is what Laban says. And see this monument I've set between us. They stand between us as a witness of our vows. I will never pass this pile of stones to harm you, and you never must never pass these stones or this monument to harm me. All right, they put them there. What that pile of stones is called a mitzpah there. It says, I re it means to remember. But the remembrance here is not some warm, fuzzy things. I've heard people actually read this verse in their marriage ceremony. Heaven forbid. But because what they're saying is basically, God, watch over us, and if I cross this line and, and you don't see me, I'm going to say, God, kill me. Same vice versa. Not a very good wedding message. But this is what he says then. I call on the God of our ancestors, the God of your grandfather Abraham, and the God of my grandfather to serve as a judge between us. This is a deadly truce. That's what this is. You remember what Moses' message was throughout the entire first five books of the Bible, the Torah? As a matter of fact, this if you're following the first five books of the Bible, I can summarize this in 15 seconds. God chose a special people. God promised that people a land of their own. God told them how to live and behave. The land had bad people in it. The bad people influenced God's people to disobey Him. That's the theme all the way through Genesis through Deuteronomy. In fact, the whole Old Testament. The book of Genesis that we've been studying is about a battle of the gods. It starts in chapter 1. God creates the sun and the moon and the stars. You know what the people around them thought they were? They thought those were gods. And there in Genesis chapter 1, God calls them light things. They're not gods. And then you got Abraham and Isaac going up to Mount Moriah. And Abraham, God says, go and sacrifice your son Isaac. And I've heard modern people try to read back onto that text, modern 
prejudices and modern ideas and they say, oh, how cruel of the God of Israel to do that. Let me tell you the difference between the God of Israel and the God of the pagan people, the Canaanites around them. The Canaanites around them did sacrifice their children. But the God of Israel is saying to Abraham, I can require you to do that, but I don't. That's not who I am. I don't do that. I am not like them. The pagan people that were surrounding Israel and surrounding Aram, they had a God for all seven of the de deadly sins. Envy, gluttony, greed, lust, pride, sloth, wrath. They had a God for every one of them and they had a name. And they worshipped them. Abraham once worshipped. And Laban still did. And when Laban is standing there, he says, I swear by the God of Nahor, his grandfather, who did worship those idols, and by the God of Abraham, and that's why I made the point earlier, the last time he saw him, his name was Abram, and Abram worshipped idols until the God of the universe, Yahweh, intervened and called him out of that. And so when, when Laban says, I swear by the God of Nahor and the God of Abraham, Isaac real quick switches it up. I mean, Jacob switches it up. I swear by the God of Isaac. Because I know that I know that I know that my daddy learned from his daddy who once had been a pagan that there was one and only God and that was Yahweh, the God of the universe. The God of Israel. That's an important thing. He must leave because if he does not leave, his children are going to start worshiping those same idols. Right. Rachel, bless her heart, steals all the household gods and takes them with her. The teraphim. These are all those pagan gods. She's packed them in her camel's saddle. I don't know why she did it. Maybe she was just stealing the wealth. I don't know. But I'm thinking she probably was hedging her bets. Because she'd been raised in that pagan household. And she's saying, well, you know, if this thing with Yahweh doesn't work out, I got these gods I can always go back to. But when they finally catch up, when, when Laban finally catches up with Jacob, with his whole army, he says, hey, you stole my household gods. And Jacob says, if you can find them, whoever stole them, you can kill them. Laban goes into Rachel's tent. And Rachel is sitting on him. She's actually sitting on her camel's saddle. And what she says to him is, Dad, I'm sorry, I can't get up. It's my time of the month. And Laban's like, man, I don't want no part of that. Uh, so 
But it does say everything in that tent, the word there in Hebrew means he fingered through everything. He searched everything except for what she was sitting on because the God of the universe was protecting her. And there's a real irony here because the most unclean thing in a woman's life was that time of the month in terms of both Israelite uh, thought and the pagan people around them. But you know what? Those gods, they couldn't speak up about that. You would think if they were gods, the minute Laban entered the room, they'd said, oh, we're right here. But they can't do it. Because those are not gods. As a matter of fact, in Deuteronomy, Moses says they are demons. And they do not have power when it comes to the God of Israel. Many people think that the worst thing that could happen is that you would be persecuted. A lot of Christians think that. That you'd be enslaved or killed or whatever. But that's not the greatest threat to God's people. The greatest threat to God's people is that we would assimilate and become just like the people around us. Laban isn't a villain because he wants to kill Jacob. He's a villain because he wanted to be Jacob to be just like him. And to worship his gods. When I teach Christian ethics, and I'm going to close here in just a minute, i got one more point. When I teach Christian ethics, the first question I ask my students there in college is, what is the greatest moral issue facing America from a Christian perspective? And I get all sorts of answers. Some will say abortion, some will say other things. And then I reveal the punchline. The greatest moral issue facing America from a Christian perspective is that the church must be the church and not the world. <laughs> Moses knew what I know. Moses knew it. The people of God must be the people of God. Do you remember that last message I delivered here about Jeremiah? Jeremiah says, go into Babylon, but while you're there, seek the peace of the city, have children, build houses, work well with all of the people there, gain wealth, but do not become Babylonians yourselves. Seek that peace, but do not assimilate to the world because the world is not your home. The last one. There's a lot of verses here that I tell you to go home and read these. But I, I want to summarize some of them and maybe read some of them. This is where Jacob has wrestled with God after having left. He sent his wife and his children on to meet Esau. And he lays down and he has another encounter with God. This time not a dream. But this time, depending on where you read in the Bible 
because Jacob didn't really know what was happening. At one point, it's called an angel. At one point, it's called a man. and one point, it's called God. Which one is it? Probably all that. And Jacob wrestles all night long with this divine figure. And when the time comes that, that Jacob, had, they've wrestled all night, and that this God in flesh, I will say, some people say it was Jesus. Bible didn't say that, but I'm willing to, I'm, I'm good with that. He wrenches his leg out of socket at his hip bone, and Jacob walks with a limp the rest of his life. And the angel tells him, God tells him, the man tells him, Jesus tells him, whoever this is, your name is no longer Jacob. Chapter 32, from now on you will be called Israel because you have fought with God and with men and have won. The word Israel, the name Israel, is made up of two words, God and fights. God and fights. Unfortunately, it's ambiguous what that means because it could mean God fights for me or God fights against me. And in the story of Israel, sometimes God is fighting for them, and sometimes God is fighting against them. If your name is Israel, you better hope it's for and not against. And then, down in chapter 33, and I won't read this, this is verses 18 through 20, but this is the first time Jacob call, himself calls God the God of Israel. God did it all, is what Jacob is saying. Chapter 35, verses 1 through 5, this is where Jacob returns to Bethel, but one of the things Jacob does here in Bethel is this is where he takes those demon-possessed foreign gods and he buries them in the dirt. If they're gods, they didn't get up. And he says, we'll no longer worship them. We're only going to worship the God of Israel because it's God. It's all God. And then chapter 35, this is where God speaks to him and says, my name is El Shaddai, God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply and you'll become a great nation. God repeats the promise again. The promise is again repeated to him because Jacob returns to Bethel, the place that the dream began, and God speaks, God still speaks, as God still God, only God. And then to close out this section, chapter 37 and verse 1. So Jacob settled again in the land of Canaan where his father had lived as a foreigner. God. Period. God. I've been where Jacob has been. You may be there right now. I've been in that story where Jacob is struggling and it was not too many years ago. I was working on a Bible for children and I had an artist who was working with me, a very talented artist, African-American guy out of Nashville, who had a real knack 
for making Bible characters look like Bible characters. Not everybody does. But he had such a beautiful eye for how to make the biblical people look like they should have looked. And that Bible, it was published and became quite popular. They sold it at Sam's Clubs and Walmart and all sorts of places. But after he had finished creating that art, I sent away for large canvases to be made of every one of the pictures in that Bible so that my colleagues at work, each of them could post a picture of one of those Bible scenes in their offices. And when they came in the shipment, I was able to choose first. I worked on the Bible myself, so I get to choose first. And I chose four. And I put one on every wall of my office. And after I'd finished putting the picture hangers up and hanging them, I settled down and I got back to work. And as I was sitting there, I want to tell you that this was a very difficult time in my life. One of the darkest times. I was going through a divorce and I felt like my world was falling apart because it was. And as I was sitting there, all of a sudden I looked up and raised my eyes from my computers to look at the Bible scenes that I had chosen. And on the wall to my right was Pharaoh's daughter fishing baby Moses out of the Nile River. And on my left was Moses under the power of God parting the Red Sea. And behind me, Behind me was Jesus reaching down to pull Peter out of the water. And then I looked above my desk, and I could see the back of Jesus leaving the tomb, saying, I'm out of here. And I realized at that moment, that those scenes from the Bible, even though it was subconscious, were speaking to my deepest need of the hour. I needed rescue. I needed deliverance. I needed salvation. I needed resurrection. And did it come immediately? No, it did not. It most certainly did not. It took years. It took years for Jacob. 20 years. And it did not come in the way I expected and it probably didn't come in the way he expected and it may not come in the way you expect and it may take a long time but when it happens it will not be of your own doing. It will be God. And when the answers come they're going to come like a flood. Because when it came for me, it was a flood, and I had no doubt that God was my deliverer. God delivered Jacob, and God delivered me. And God will deliver you. I'm going to ask that we close our eyes here for just a moment.
And I'm going to ask that question. Is there someone in your life that seems to be standing in the way of God fulfilling the promise He made you? And I'm going to ask you, if you don't have someone like that, do you have a friend who does? And are you willing to stand in their place? Even if they don't have the power to stand. I'm going to ask you if that describes you. While, we're, while the music is playing, I'm going to ask that we stand to our feet. Those who, who say that is true about me. If you're a pastor here, you better know somebody like that. You better. Because you know somebody you're ministering to that has someone standing in their way. And while you're standing, I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer with me and to pray it after me as I, as I say it. Lord, I believe you have put a promise on my life. Many things have gotten in the way. My own sin and disobedience. Other people. I ask you to deliver me from any of the devil's schemes. Even if other people are trying to carry them out. I ask you to work in their lives so they might not work against you. I ask you to forgive them. I ask you to change them. I ask you to bless them. Lord, it is hard for me to say this, but I forgive. And I bless them. Even if it is not in my heart right now. I am saying it with my mouth. Because I know. It is your will for me. Show me Lord. How to follow the promise. Into the promised land. I trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hallelujah. Yeah, so that's a lot to chew on, amen. So we just, I'm going to dismiss you. I'll just have you all just stand as we close out our service this morning. Um, you know, I was, I was with him until... He just messed all the married men up. He told us our wives here, uh, God, more than we do. You imagine what's going to happen in your home, right? God told me to, for you to clean the whole house. God, God told me that you go clean the yard. He just, mess, just messed us all up. Amen? Nah, that's good. That's good. Amen. I just pray that you will be blessed this morning. 
um, we're gonna we're gonna have some um, uh, our prayer team to hang back a little bit if you need if you need some prayer um, as as we close out the service. If if you never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, what a great opportunity that you have right now to do so. We have a team that will lead you in that salvation prayer. Or if you want to break some of the Laban's uh, spirit that's in your life right now, uh, uh, people that's trying to stop you from moving forward or up, up, obtaining the promise, we want to pray for you as well. Amen. So I pray that you'll be blessed. Have a great week. Um, God's going to move in your life. Get ready for him to move. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for tuning in to Calvary Life DFW's weekly podcast. If what you heard today impacted you, be sure to tell us about it. You can rate and subscribe to this podcast or contact us on social media. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram or our website, calvarylifedfw.com. Thank you so much and have a great week.